Welcome to Sentient Planet. You know, what turned out to be our vision is now turning out to be unfinished business that is now being finished. In Vietnam, it's done. Bear farming is done. And we just have a few years to mop up the industry and see those bears out of those cages and into sanctuary. And then this again will create the ripple effect in the other countries where bear farming exists. I have no doubt about that at all. Have you ever heard of moon bears? I hadn't until the day I heard about Jill Robinson. English-born Jill is the founder and chief executive officer of the animal welfare organization Animals Asia. She is the recipient of many prestigious international awards that recognize her service on behalf of non-human animals. But she is best known for her stunning work to expose and start to stamp out the horrific bear bile industry. Moon bears, who are Asian black bears, are so named because of the trademark white crescent that appears across their necks. Every day, humans subject thousands of captive moon bears and some other bear species to the painful extraction of bile from their gallbladders in crude and confined conditions that are really beyond imagination. The good news is that thanks to Jill and her amazing teams of local advocates, this cruel industry is under serious scrutiny. Things are changing. Indeed, in Vietnam, bear bile extraction is no longer legal. I had the chance to talk with Jill about these developments, as well as victories for cats and dogs in Asia, from her home in Hong Kong. Jill, I so admire you and feel privileged to have you as a guest on Sentient Planet. We want to do our part in helping even more people hear about your incredible work on behalf of our animal kin. So I just wanted to start with thank you so much for being here on the show and on the planet. I must admit that um, bear farming is one of the most confronting animal abuses that I've ever had to delve into. So across various Asian countries, there are thousands of Asiatic black bears, kept by humans in really the most unimaginably crude and cruel conditions. So I don't want to dwell on their suffering in this interview too much because you've got some real momentum going now in your goal to end this industry, and that's the message that we want to help amplify. But can you briefly help our listeners understand the lay of the land, the status of bear farming and where it's happening? Yeah, sure, Susan. First of all, thank you so much for such a nice introduction and for having me on your show. It's wonderful to be here. Gosh, yes, let's launch right into bear bar farming. It's an industry that began in the early 1980s. Um, actually, it was developed through a technique honed in North Korea, believe it, of, of all places. And then the technique was very quickly picked up in China, where, you know, to be fair, the authorities were trying to save their wild species of Asiatic black bears from being killed in the wild for their whole gallbladders, which were literally akin to, you know, liquid bags of gold. Um, such was, you know, how precious bear bile has been seen over thousands of years. So putting bears into a cage 
and then inventing a way of extracting the bile from the gallbladder was how the, uh, the authorities went, you know, in China. This initiative was also then picked up in other countries of Asia, including South Korea and Vietnam, and indeed in Laos as well, um, and Myanmar in Burma. So it's been pretty sort of prolific across the Asia continent. And I think one of the things that we should say as well is that, you know, we shouldn't be disparaging traditional medicine, even though it's something that, you know, a practice that is very distasteful to us in terms of bear bile farming. Mm-hmm. What we have found over these years is that bear bile works. And it's not only been used in Chinese pharmacopoeia or Asian traditional medicine, but it's also been replicated in Western terms. So bear bile is now synthesized, not from using bears, but chemically in a lab. Um, since about the 1950s, because people realised that it contains something called ursodeoxyfolic acid, or UDCA, and this can be replicated in a laboratory, and indeed is sold by the tonne across the world now without using bears. So the point is it, it can be replaced very easily and very cheaply by synthetics and by herbs. Okay, let's delve into that a little bit. So what I'm hearing you say is that there was a illicit trade of some sort that was going on where folks were going out and grabbing bears in the wild across these Asian countries, particularly China, it sounds like, and taking enough of them that it was getting to a stage where those bears were becoming endangered? Exactly that. They're already on Appendix 1, endangered species. Wow. But I should say as well that I'm afraid it was a well-intentioned but flawed initiative as well, because what we're seeing today is that, of course, many of the bears are dying from great many disease as a result of both the surgical mutilation and the extraction process as well. So to supplement the numbers on the farms, we're seeing farmers in Asia that are actually taking still bears from the wild to make up the numbers on the farms of the bears they've lost. Wow. Okay. So did the, did the Chinese government actually intentionally start an industry of bear bile farming? Was it something that they went out and encouraged and, and enticed farmers to do? Yeah, it was very much. And indeed the Vietnam government and the South Korea government as well. You know, all the the governments actively encouraged this because they believed it would be saving the wild populations. Okay. And so then give us a lay of the land of what that has looked like since the 80s, if you could. How many bears are we talking about? We're talking thousands and thousands of bears still, you know, all across the Asia continent. But there's some good news on the horizon. You know, we'll talk about this, obviously, I think in a little while, but Vietnam has very much made it now an illegal practice, as has South Korea. Uh, Farmers there are no longer allowed to take bile from their bears. However, there is a a flaw as well in that, that when the bears reach 10 years of age, they're allowed to kill their own bears for the whole gallbladders. But I should say as well, there are many NGOs now working on this issue together with the government. And it finally, finally looks as though a sanctuary is going to be developed in South Korea for those bears as well. So there's only a few hundred left in that country. So it looks like it's good news for the South Korean bears as well as the Vietnam bears. Okay, we'll definitely get into the happy news story there. You made the comment that bear bile works. Can you elaborate? What does it treat? Well, in Chinese terms, it's termed as a cold medicine to treat the opposite, heat-related illnesses like high fevers and high temperatures, chronic liver complaints, red and sore eyes, anything that's inflamed. So even hemorrhoids, believe it or not, whereas we know, of course, there's many alternatives um, you know, to be able to treat these ailments. And in Vietnam, it's used slightly differently. It can be taken, it can be ingested, um, often with rice wine to treat, believe it or not, hangover cures. 
Um, but also in Vietnam, it's more generally used topically onto the skin to treat things like chronic and heavy bruising, etc. Okay, lots of plants that can treat that sort of condition as well, though. Absolutely. There's 54 different herbal alternatives in China, and there's another 32 herbal alternatives in Vietnam. So again, you know, it's not like a one-on-one replacement. It's a different combination of these herbs and plants that can replace bare bile. But certainly there are many, many alternatives out there that do, you know, achieve the function that bare bile is touted for in traditional medicine. You also said that this extraction of bare bile or the bare bile as a medicine has been something that's been going on for thousands of years. Can you elaborate on that? I'm curious about how this all started and perhaps the you know, the relationship between these bears and human beings. Is there a mythology around that? Is there history around that that you can educate us on? Yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting. You know, when you do read um, traditional medicine books that go back a couple of thousand years at least, and you find that bear bile was used actually just in very small doses for very specific ailments. Um, It was hardly used at all. But over the years, of course, you know, as it became more popular. I mean, bear farming, I have to say, almost made it become a boom industry. And suddenly we were seeing that farmers were touting bear bile for, you know, to cure anything from headaches to hemorrhoids, even AIDS. And certainly today, things like COVID. It's just something, again, that has really sort of accelerated far beyond the original usage that it was used for in, in traditional pharmacopoeia all those thousands of years ago. I just love the story of how you discovered bear bile farming and became motivated to set up Animals Asia with the goal of ending that industry. It's such a moving tale of non-human to human communication and activation. Do you mind sharing your story one more time? (laughs) Yeah, sure. I mean, I always say to kids that you always receive messages in your life that you can choose to listen to or ignore. And sometimes those messages are very subtle and sometimes they just smack you in the face. And this was probably the latter, although I didn't kind of realise it at the time, I suppose. But it was in 1993 when I was working for the International Fund for Animal Welfare as their Asia representative. I received a call from a journalist friend of mine. I'd been doing undercover investigations of the live animal markets in you know, South Korea, the Philippines, China, etc. But this was a new one on me when this journalist said that he'd come across the bear bile farm in China and something piqued my interest. And I thought, gosh, yes, I have to go along and see that. And so I grabbed a couple of friends. We went across the border and we found the bear farm. We found a group of Japanese and Taiwan tourists um, and we joined them and we went onto the bear bile farm. We broke away from the group because they were just being shown the shop and encouraged to buy bear bile. They weren't actually looking at the bile extracted bears. So your your journalist friend had given you a heads up that there was something really amiss with this. Exactly. So he told us where these steps were going down into the basement. And we went down and we found ourselves in this horrible dark room with 32 moon bears in cages with six-inch metal catheters protruding from their abdomens. Some of them, of course, missing limbs from being caught illegally in the wild, in leg hole traps. Some of them had scars running from one end of their body to the other, where they'd literally grown into the cage bars. Missing teeth, uh, you know, from where they'd been cut back deliberately or where the bears had chewed on the bars of the cage and broken their own teeth as well. And it was just the most hideous thing, you know, to walk around and and be so helpless to help animals that were confronting you clearly in so much pain, physically and psychologically. And as I walked around the farm, 
this room. I, I must have backed too closely into a cage and I felt something touch my shoulder. I just turned around in shock because I thought, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm going to be really hurt here. I've, I've been ridiculously stupid to get too close to a cage. But all I saw was a, a bear whose stretcher poured through the bars of the cage um, and was holding it out to me. I don't know what possessed me to this day, but I guess it's just that sort of compassion of seeing another species so horribly compromised that something compelled me to take her paw. And she didn't hurt me, as she should have done. How did she know the difference between me and a farmer that obviously had been extracting and hurting her body? But she just squeezed my fingers. That's all she did. Mm. And from that second, I, I just... I just had this feeling deep, deep, deep inside that everything had changed. And it did. Everything did change from that second. Over the years after rescuing bears, you know, we've rescued nearly 650 bears now from China and Vietnam. We would never do anything so crazy stupid as to grab a bear's paw on a bear bar farm. They are unpredictable. They are potentially aggressive. They are curious. They are hellishly strong. And why she didn't hurt me to this day, I don't know. But it was. The pictures prove it. And it was just something that that one bear, that one solitary bear, she began everything to where we are today. Just the most astounding thing. So that was 20 years ago and it it set you on a path. Do you want to talk a little bit about the organization that you set up and what your mission is? Yeah, actually, gosh, it was nearly 30 years ago. Oh, okay. I can't. <laughs> I know how time flies, right? Yeah, she did. She started Animals Asia. You know, it was, it was just something that walking out of that farm, I, I just knew that every focus would be on ending this industry. First of all, it was obviously finding out a little bit about how bears are used, talking to traditional medicine practitioners, realizing that no one was going to die because they couldn't get their hands on bear bile. And so realizing that we had a chance to end this you know, by working with the governments in these countries. So Animals Asia was founded in 1998. There were five of us. Gosh, with one of them, Boris, who's still with us. He's still our founding director in China. Gail is still my vet. John is my ex-husband. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're still, we're still sort of quite a team. You yeah, know, an intimate group of friends. Yeah, absolutely. We remain good friends to this day, totally, totally. So that's 23 years Animals Asia has been founded. And we have achieved our founding goal in Vietnam to end bear farming there. And we've also achieved another founding goal in China in terms of the dog and cat trade that we can talk about later as well. So we're very, very proud. It's not very often that an NGO can say they've reached their founding goals. But, you know, I have to show off just a little bit and say, oh, my gosh, it's such a relief because it's, it's empowering. It just makes us go right onto the next and onto the next after that. We were very focused. We deliberately focused our aims on three main projects on ending bear farming, cat and dog welfare and captive animal welfare as well. Hi, it's Susan. Sentient Planet amplifies the voices of the species with whom we share the earth and the humans dedicated to their urgent defense and preservation. We're providing additional content at patreon.com slash sentientplanet. I hope you'll check it out and consider supporting us for a few dollars a month. Thank you. Let's get into what's happening in Vietnam. Go ahead and tell us um, the good news story over there. 
Well, that was a country that I first began to investigate in the late 1990s. And that was a very different method of bile extraction, where bears at that time were literally anaesthetized and had surgery to cut into their abdomens and their gallbladders and remove that bile every three months and then sew them up again. And not surprisingly, you know, after about four surgeries, so after about a year, to the government's own admission, the bears would die. And then they embarked on a new practice of bile extraction when that obviously wasn't very sustainable for the numbers of bears, where they still anaesthetize the bears with illegal ketamine, I should say, the horse drug that is not, is not allowed, it's not legal in Vietnam. And once the bear was unconscious, they would then use an ultrasound to detect where the gallbladder was. And then they would insert a four inch spinal needle into that area where the ultrasound had found the gallbladder. They would just keep stabbing and stabbing and taking the needle out of the sheath and licking it to ensure that they'd reach the bitter tasting bile within the gallbladder. Dear God. I know. At that point, when they were sure, they would put the needle back into the sheath and they would pump out about 100 mil of bile. But you can imagine, even though that was maybe a less invasive technique than implanting catheters or creating a, a free drip fistula, as they do in China, a hole that sees bile freely drip out. Actually, the perpetual stabbing of a needle, as they do in Vietnam, still caused a massive amount of pathology in these bears and still led to things like peritonitis and septicemia, obviously puncturing the liver, the spleen, all the organs around, which we can see through, you know, when our team go in and do abdominal surgery, we can see these puncture marks and these scars from where the needles went in. But anyway, happily, 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 Vietnam over the years, made bear farming illegal. And we've reached the stage now where in 2017, we joined with the Vietnam government, Ministry of Forestry, to create a memorandum of understanding, which would see us now work together towards ending bear bar farming together in that country within the next few years. And that's our goal now. Not surprisingly, you know, the Vietnam government have said to end it, we need somewhere to put those bears. That's the obvious thing. And so we've committed to building our second sanctuary in Vietnam. It's our third sanctuary overall and our second sanctuary there where we can rescue approximately 300 bears. And there are about 367 bears left in the country. So by the time the sanctuary is built, we should have enough room together with you know, other NGOs that are working there to have mopped up the industry. So since 2017, Due to your partnership or Animals Asia's partnership with the federal government in Vietnam, there has been a, a slowing down of the industry, a phasing out of the industry, I guess, over the last four years. And now there are a few hundred of the many thousand that previously were in captivity. And those few hundred you're going to be taking to a sanctuary so they can live out the rest of their lives. Have I got the, that story right? exactly right. Thank you for paraphrasing. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. How close are you to completing that second sanctuary? Uh, we haven't even begun breaking ground yet. Okay. We're, with the paperwork now, with the government, we have project documents, we have to have an environmental assessment. Everything has been put back over the last couple of years, obviously because of COVID, but you know, we're on our way now. We've got the project document ready. We've chosen the land together with the government. So it's in Bakmar National Park, which is absolutely fantastic. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece of land. And we've got the support, of course, of people worldwide who are you know, supporters that have been driving us forward on this. 
So now we just need to raise the money to literally break ground and start construction, hopefully within about November of this year. And then by January, we should have finished things like the quarantine area, the hospital, so that we can start at least rescuing bears properly of the number that are left in Vietnam. I'm curious about the first sanctuary and how many bears you've already rescued in Vietnam. Oh, gosh, we've rescued uh, over 200 bears in Vietnam already. And as I say, over these years in both countries, um, a total of 648. So it's, um, it's been quite some journey, I suppose. And, you know, I have to say, it, it's an expensive journey too. Bears are a huge, very charismatic and very greedy animals that need a lot of food in their tummies. So, <laughs> and a lot, of course, of medication. Virtually every bear that we rescue needs some form of medical intervention just because of the treatment on the bear bar farms. It's been very um, comprehensive, I would say, our veterinary care. We've got fantastic teams in both China and Vietnam, but we've certainly had to spend the money on proper, professional, sophisticated hospitals. Yeah, you must be constantly in fundraising mode as well. Where do you get most of your support? Yeah, totally. Really from the general public, from people being generous. Obviously, in the US, we've got a fantastic support base. People are wonderful, but there's no question we need much, much, much more help to be ending this industry once and for all. I hope that people enjoy what they're hearing about what is essentially a good news story. If we can create this initiative in Vietnam to end bear farming, the way that we're doing this might seem surprising to some people, but it's through kindness. No one's going to be embarrassed as a result of our work. No farmers are going to get the finger pointed at them. No one's going to be criticised. Who takes notice when you're criticised? Mm -hmm. You know, you just push back. So this is a way that we want everybody to join this as a celebration of saving not just the bears' lives that are in the bear farms, but also protecting their counterparts in the wild as well. Again, in collaboration with the government, with the bear farmers, so that no one loses face. If we could go back to China just for a second, can you talk about this summer's closure of a bear farm in Nanning, China, and your rescue of that farm's 101 beautiful moon bears? And this, of course, is the subject of the short film, Moon Bear Homecoming, which um, folks can watch on your website and which is narrated by the American actor James Cromwell. That's another great news story. It's been remarkable. I mean, it's, it's responsible for so many grey hairs for myself <laughs> and really the rest of the team, not just in China, but worldwide. You know, everyone has been invested in this rescue since 2013, believe it or not, when we were first approached by a bear bar farmer in China who had taken over a horticulture facility. Hmm. And he'd realised that it contained a bear bar farm. And as a practising Buddhist and with a young daughter that loved animals, he just couldn't uh, excuse the pun, he couldn't bear what he was seeing. And so he contacted us and he asked if we would take over the farm and create a sanctuary. And at first we were really enthusiastic about this, but the more that we spoke with him, 
the more we realised that it was going to be fundamentally difficult for a lot of reasons to take over the farm. So we actually then asked if we could take all those bears back to our sanctuary in China, in Chengdu. Um, and he agreed. And so we embarked on getting the licenses and the permits and everything else we needed. And that was what took the time. It was absolutely incredible. In the meantime, the horticulture centre kept being bought out by various different businesses. And each time it was bought out, we had to go back to square one and renegotiate. Renegotiate. Oh, gosh. Because it's been an eight-year journey from the moment that he was like, please, I I don't want to be part of this. And you guys were like, great, we'll take them. It's been an eight-year journey to actually manifest that. Exactly. So we had Nick, our Bear and Vet team director, who was heading up the team, you know, in the early years. And now we've got Ryan, Marcel Sukok, who's heading up the team now. And this team is just second to none, you know, seriously. By the time we got the final permit early this year, I, I don't think any of us could believe it, you know, that it had finally come through. It was just all hands on deck in the quickest, quickest time before anyone could change their mind again. We got the permit. It was like, we have to go for this. So it was just within a few weeks that, you know, in three different um, sectors of travel that we got every single one of those 101 bears out of that farm and into our sanctuary in Chengdu. This was over a journey of 750 miles. This was nine trucks, then nine trucks, then seven trucks. So an incredible logistical nightmare to organise. I can only imagine. It was incredible. It was incredible. That's the only word for it, Susan. Yeah. You know, it's hard enough to rescue one bear but to rescue 101 bears on the road. It was virtually two days and two nights, stopping along the way, feeding, medicating, cleaning, keeping the general public away that were obviously very interested. Our staff having to just literally drive through the night, just keep going. We had CCTV cameras in all the trucks, so we were able to look out for these bears. Everyone comes through with new ideas, and we've not used CCTV before, but our COO, Bruce, he came up with the idea and we thought, we'll give it a go. And it worked beautifully well. It was fantastic. So that when our team was sleeping on the coaches on the drive, others of us could then be looking at the CCTV cameras to make sure that everything was going okay and the bears were safe. What were you guys able to do for those 101 bears uh, during the eight years while they were waiting to end up at the sanctuary? What were you able to do to reduce their suffering and get them out of at least the level of confinement that they were in. You must have been working on that as well, I imagine. Yeah, we had a team working there the whole time and it was really difficult working on an ex-bear farm. It's dangerous, it's dirty. I mean, just the conditions there are indescribable. And again, our team were just so brilliant. I can't mention names because there were just so many of them, Mm -hmm. you know, going for three months at a time or even longer. So living on site on this awful place, just obviously... First of all, giving them good nutritious food, taking away their pain. So obviously our vet team were able to travel there. We we rigged up, you know, a makeshift surgery there where they were able to remove painful and damaged teeth, even able to remove gallbladders. We'd give medication where it was warranted. But even things like feeding them, we would actually feed them in their cages so that we made being in their current crush cages, where before they would be milked for their bile and in pain, we made this a pleasurable experience because we realized at some point that they would be then going into cages for the journey home. So we wanted to make these cages somewhere that was a very positive experience. Right, so they wouldn't be so stressed out. Often bear farms have a tiny, tiny yard, a tiny yard outside where the bears can at least walk around, literally in circles. 
And so we opened up the yards. We allowed these bears to go out. We put paddling pools out there. We could get a little paddling pool in each yard. We could get a hammock in each yard. Wow. And we could put toys there, you know, so we could keep them stimulated as well within Richmond. Luxury, absolute luxury. Well, it was obviously light years away from what they'd experienced. But the biggest difference I think we're seeing now is having got them home back to the sanctuary. It's just incredible, Susan, to see them outside in grassy enclosures, to see them doing things like zoomies for the first time in their life, just zooming around, absolutely delirious, hysterical with joy. Using their leg muscles. (laughs) Exactly. To integrate with the other bears, have playmates, have fun, to be able to forage properly for the first time in their life, you know, have choices that they never had before. It's just the most wonderful thing to see. I was just thinking about that today, actually, as I was getting ready for this interview with you, I was thinking how incredible it must have been for something as simple as the ability to feel sun and wind on their faces after all those years of confinement. I know that you were in Hong Kong during the rescue because you weren't able to get over to China because of COVID and travel restrictions. But I imagine you have been there and seen them since since that <laughs> happened this summer, right? I wish. You haven't seen them yourself yet. I'm stuck in Hong Kong. Oh, totally. my God. Well, COVID is getting much, much worse in Vietnam. It has improved in China, but still there's flare-ups. And so still, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not welcome uh, into China yet. And, you know, even if I could get there, Hong Kong's restrictions also make it prohibitive. So the whole thing is just a mess. It's just horrible. And I I miss everyone. You know, and over these years, over these years, it's about 19 months. It's just been heart-wrenching, I have to say, because obviously we've lost some of the bears in the process. We've lost some of our dogs and cats. And it's just, um, you know, just to think that the last time I saw those animals there was the last time I saw them. Ones that you can't help being so intrinsically attached to, so emotionally attached to. And I'll never see them again. It sucks, really. But, you know, at the end of the day, I have to say, I mean, how lucky we are. We've got a team that is looking after them so beautifully well. I'm not needed there. I'm not. My gosh, they're doing a brilliant job in both countries. And those bears are just so happy and so healthy as a result. And I'm sure you're still able to provide a high element of leadership from where you are. But I understand what you're saying about how personally painful it must be. There's no way for you to have known, obviously, last time you left there that there was going to be a pandemic and you wouldn't see some of those animals again. Oh, and yeah, you're right. We talk every day, whether on email or on Skype or Zoom or whatever. So there's still a great, great connection with both sanctuaries. I think I'm maybe more worried about how many spiders are in my room at this point having not been <laughs> for 19 months. <laughs> so They'll have moved in. <laughs> We definitely have moved in. We have some crackers of spiders. We have huge, great ones called huntsmen. You know, to try and remove those humanely is uh, is quite a challenge, I have to say. But
Jill, tell us a little bit about another arm of the work that Animals Asia does for dogs and cats in Asia. And again, perhaps you can give us the lay of the land and what you've been working on and the changes that you see happening because of that work. Yeah, so pleased to. You know, this was again one of the founding missions of Animals Asia. And it was something when I first came to Hong Kong that I was absolutely horrified to see in in many Asian countries, you know, dogs and and cats being killed for the food table. And, you know, I have to say right off that obviously I'm I'm a vegan as well. So this is not just limited to dogs and cats. I just felt at the time that if we can try to connect people with animals that are inherently our best friends or seen as our best friends, then we can start to work on programs used, you know, with other animals that are just as intelligent, just as emotionally aware as dogs and cats, etc. But first things first, it was looking at the dog and cat industry and thinking, oh my gosh, how can we end this? So it was really, again, you know, working from the inside out. Let's back it up just a little bit if we could, and let's tell people what the dog and cat industry is. I, you know, I'm not sure that everybody really understands the extent of what's happening. Gosh, absolutely. Well, you know, in China, where particularly where probably around 10 million dogs and cats are being slaughtered for the dinner table and very inhumanely, of course, as well, especially during the winter time, dogs are seen as probably more of a tonic to warm the body during cold days. Any live market that you go to in the past, you see the pitiful animals being trucked in, slaughtered in front of each other. And the one thing that we found over these years during our investigations is that nearly 100% of them are stolen Mm. from people's family homes. They're stolen from the streets. There are not the dog farms in China that people assume there are. People in China assume they are. There's hardly any dog farms at all. They're literally stolen. Certainly outside of our rescue center in Chengdu, we've had many, many village dogs that belong to people that are stolen within seconds and just grabbed and put into the back of vans that then just hurtle off into the sunset and take these dogs to the live animal markets and the restaurants, et cetera, as well. So it's a disgusting industry operating under totally illegal practices. So it's not legal to eat dog or cat in China? Today, not. Over the years, we've had to work under conditions where it has been tolerated, um, even though we know that the traders have been operating under illegal circumstances. I mean, of course, it would be against regulations to be taking people's private property. But there were many a blind eye turned, I have to say. And it was because of our work over the last, gosh, actually over three decades now before Animals Asia was even founded, just going into these live animal markets, just documenting this industry, just understanding what happens in the trade illegally, talking to um, schools and universities and business groups about the industry working with traditional medicine practitioners, as we have done in the past, about the use of cats and dogs for tonics. Oh, my goodness. It's it's been what we call a a holistic approach, working with non-government groups, as we've been doing, to help them upgrade their shelters so that when the dogs that they rescue come in, they can then make them more appropriate for adopting out to the local community, have their shelters looking and even smelling better for the community when they come along, so to make the dogs more attractive for adopting out. Of course, working with the government in so many ways, knocking on doors of the authorities countrywide, having conferences where local groups and government authorities can get together in the same room and talk about the problems and how we solve them together. And it was in May of this year, of last year, 
that finally dogs and by default cats were removed from the livestock and poultry genetic resources list, meaning that it was now illegal to sell both species for food. Well done. Well, Susan, I should say is there's a caveat because we're going to see pushback. This is not something I think that the authorities are going to end overnight because it is such a sensitive subject. And there are a lot of people, of course, that still feel culturally it's their right to eat dogs and cats. But now, again, we're working with lawyers in the country. It is totally illegal to sell dogs and cats for consumption. We have been reporting restaurants. Um, Other local groups have been reporting restaurants, people in the street doing the same. And these restaurants have been closed down by local authorities. So, you know, there is definitely progress. People will always ask about Yulin, where, you know, it's called the... Dog Festival. Right, Dog and Lychee Festival every year. Volunteers reported back this year that there were far less dogs being sold. There were far less restaurants selling the dogs. And there were also restaurants that were covering up the fact that they were selling uh, dog meat as well, covering up dog meat on, on their signage as well, as many other restaurants are doing across the country after being spoken to by the local authorities. So it's going to take time. We're not saying it's it's not, but we can see it reducing and we will continue working in the country as we have been to ensure that dogs are fine and cats are finally removed from the dinner table. So culturally, I mean, there must be a demand for that meat. What alternatives are there for people to eat? Gosh, yeah, great question. We've actually been doing surveys all these years because to understand the market, we need to understand the consumers. You know, we need to understand what's going on out there. What we found is that actually there are very few people in China that are still consuming dogs and cats, except they're consuming them during festivals, during parties. One of the questions in our latest survey this year found out that people were really largely consuming dogs and cats when they were invited to by friends or family during social occasions. You know, it's very, very much reduced across the country. And the reason there's still so many being consumed is because there's so many people in China. But actually what we're finding is that less and less people now, when we're talking about surveys, are consuming dogs and cats. And one of the key findings is that people have said if they realised that they were consuming dogs and cats that had been stolen from people's homes or the streets, they would no longer consume this meat. And that's exactly what our investigations have proven, that these animals are being stolen from the streets and from people's homes as well. The other point was that people are also saying that they're not consuming dogs and cats anymore because they realise that the industry is cruel and because they realise that dogs and cats are good for our physical and our psychological health. And that, again, is something that we've been working on for decades is taking dogs into hospitals and disabled centres and into the community, into schools to bond with the local community and have people really acknowledge that dogs and cats are our friends and not food. Wow. So there has been a huge shift, it sounds like. And um, if I'm understanding you, in time past, not as much now, there was really quite a huge consumer misunderstanding of a couple of things. One, the cruelty of the industry and the and where those animals or where that food source was coming from. And there was also a misunderstanding about the emotional connection that humans have with these animals that go back a very long time. Yeah, a good, great point. Absolutely. Gosh, China has spoken about benevolence towards animals for centuries. There are many, many papers that are out there. There are many academics talking about our connection with animals, not just dogs and cats, but with all animals. 
and it's sort of been going backwards and forwards in history, I would say. We've come through a very dark age, you know, over the last few decades. And now it seems that things are opening up again. There was one animal welfare group when I started, and there's over 400 animal welfare groups in China today. And these are really passionate people that are going out there, they're rescuing animals, they're even with feral cats in the street, they're trapped, neutering, returning them. They're working on public education programs with local communities. The local authorities are realizing that obviously to be kind to animals, to be kind to dogs and cats, especially in the streets, um, we're helping to prevent rabies, which in a country with the second highest incidence of rabies in the world is something that they're really taking notice of now. And, and also recognizing again that dogs especially are great companions and great helpers to the human species and are welcoming these dogs across the country, again, into disabled centres, homes for the blind, the sick, the elderly, into schools to help children enhance their reading capabilities. You know, all these different components that really, really connect the general public, again, with what we all want in life, with a very best friend. Yeah, and they sure can be. Um, so there's always going to be some pushback, right? from special interests that stand to make a living out of that trade. And I'm thinking it can also be very touchy, and I don't really need to tell you this, you're living this, for an English woman to bring your so-called Western sensibilities to Asia to end these types of industries. How do you handle all of that? I mean, I imagine there's a lot of propaganda around that that you would hear as well. So how do you personally handle that. I mean, you must have a lot of inner strength and resource. I just think what you're doing is so courageous and gutsy and potentially confrontational and contentious. Yeah, it has been. It has been. But remember our tagline, you know, one of our taglines is Asia-based and Asia-focused. And, you know, we've never lost sight of the fact that we're here as, as guests. From the word go, even though I've lived here for, gosh, 35 years now, 36 years, Animals Asia was created with local people, inspiring at the helm. And that's how we led our programs over these years. Yes, I used to join the investigations all the time with our team, but I, I don't now because you're right, a Western face today can be really dangerous because the traders know in those markets, the traders know why a Westerner is there. You know, it's to take pictures and make trouble. Mm -hmm. It maybe wouldn't be so dangerous for me but I think it would be extremely dangerous for our Chinese team to be there with a Westerner, to be encouraging a Westerner. So I just don't put that trouble on their shoulders anymore. And I don't join these investigations, even though it was just something in me that wanted to go along there and see for myself and be part of those investigations. It's just sort of working with them, if you like, on the sidelines now, going through what exactly is happening, but making it from a really Chinese or a Vietnamese perspective, driven by our local team and the local general public and the local government officials, everything local, so that it's a program that they can be proud of, of ending in their country by them. Yeah, that's just awesome. Um, so it sounds like the work is evolving in many ways exactly as, as it needs to. Yeah, I mean, we're very big on capacity training. Both of our sanctuaries in China and Vietnam um, are headed up by the most part a Chinese and a Vietnamese team. The majority of people that work there are Chinese and, and Vietnamese. And in fact, our new sanctuary, within five years of its construction, we are aiming it to be totally, totally run by local Vietnamese. You know, we have people promoted through the ranks from coming in as, as a local bear carer 
right through to being someone in charge, you know, a bear manager, a bear team supervisor, et cetera, et cetera. And in terms of the veterinary side of things, we're training interns, veterinary interns in Vietnam, again, to have these people as the leaders in their country. We're all so excited about this. It is a case of national pride, you know, and it's a case of, of having this ripple effect, not just to our sanctuary, but to other facilities across the country having these people just lead animal welfare in their countries. Jill, you seem so very optimistic. Tell me your vision for bears and other species. What does the future look like? Boris, our founding director, when I said it's our dream, he said it's unfinished business. And I can't put it better than that because, you know, what turned out to be our vision is now turning out to be unfinished business that is now being finished. In Vietnam, it's done. Bear farming is done and we just have a few years to mop up the industry and see those bears out of those cages and into sanctuary. And then this again will create a ripple effect in the other countries where bear farming exists. I have no doubt about that at all. We see the climate changing. We see the culture changing. We see people visiting our sanctuaries, passionate, passionate local people who love what we do and want to see this industry ended. We are seeing cat and dog eating now. The sale of cat and dogs in China is illegal for consumption. So we are well on our way now to just ensuring that it happens. It's no good packing our bags now and leaving the country. We still have a lot of work to do and with NGOs as well. But we can see this vision becoming closer and closer to completion now. And it's just the best feeling in the world. We made a promise all those years ago, all those years ago to that one bear that I met in 1993. And that promise is being kept. Thanks, Jill. It's been really lovely to hear from you and to catch up on all of your great successes. If people hear this and they would like to support the work that you are leading, what are some of the things that they can do? Yeah, please. Thank you for the <laughs> reserving the most compelling question perhaps to the end because we need your help. We can't do this without the wherewithal, without the means behind us. So please hop onto the social networks and or Google Animals Asia and join, join this band that are really, really making a fundamental difference now in Asia. Because I think, again, it shows that if we can do it here, we can do it in so many other countries as well, by working from the inside out and spreading compassion and spreading kindness, most of all, wherever we are, not just as a community, but as individuals as well. A new tagline is kindness is the only cure. And I absolutely believe that. To heal this world, we need to be kind. So join us and we'd love you to help us towards this end to end game. I love what you guys are doing. It's so um, courageous and inspiring and you're making a difference that's really quite unbelievable. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for everything that you're doing and be watching your work with a lot of interest. Oh, Susan, thank you for championing this work and helping us. Really, really grateful. You bet. For more about today's guest, as well as actions for animal justice that you can take, please visit sentientplanetpodcast.com and join our pod. We're also on socials at Sentient Planet Podcast, and you can support our work on Patreon. Susan Woodward is your host and content producer. Our social media and outreach manager is Ari Simmons. 
Sound engineering by Liam Wilkinson. Art direction by Janet Grimway. Intro music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. All interstitial music by Stellardrome. Our love to all beings. Thanks for listening. <laughs>